Lindy believes movement is a requirement for creating a life of purpose. As a movement behavioral specialist, she helps put people in motion so they can fully express themselves in the world, pursue their dreams, have fun, and eat more chocolate. Now, chocolate consumption is one of Lindy's core values, although she will occasionally work with people who don't like chocolate, but I'm happy to find myself in the category of chocolate-loving individuals that Lindy will work with. That's fortunate. It, I, I didn't <laughs> want to jump through the extra hoops, and dark chocolate is part of my everyday routine. Yeah, same. Yeah, it has to be dark. Yes, same. Mm -hmm. I just had some right before we started talking. Yeah. Occasionally, I get fancy and throw a little almond in there, but really, pure dark chocolate's the way mm -hmm. to go. It is. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me and thanks for coming to the studio. Absolutely. Yeah, we are recording today, um, for those of you watching on video, at um, Park Meadows Center for Movement. Did I get the new name right? You did I'm get still the new used name, to right? throwing Pilates there. Yes, so, yes. Park Meadows Center for Movement. So, in the, the Coraline studio, you'll see some of the fun props and things behind us. Mm -hmm. But thank you for opening up your home to us. Yeah, you're welcome. I always like to start with the same question because I think it's really important to start thinking of exercise as something just a little bit different than hitting the gym every day. Mm -hmm. And for me, that talks about uh, when do you first remember movement being fun? I think I, I, I don't remember a time when it wasn't. That's wonderful. Because um, I grew up in Australia. Mm -hmm. So I was one of those little barefoot kids on the beach every weekend. And um, yeah, I, do, I just always remember moving and I remember you know dreaming of of doing things you know as I like I I thought I was going to be a dancer and I mm -hmm. would pretend I was a dancer when I was a little kid so that's actually one of my earliest memories is pretending that I'm a dancer um so I you know it was more later on it became not fun for me what was the shift between running around barefoot and what made it not fun um it was more in adulthood and it had a lot to do with where I was at, mm -hmm. you know, as a human being and not so much about what I was doing. Um, not the activity itself. Not the activity. No, because, in, you know, in school I, you know, I did all sorts of sports and activities mm -hmm. and, you know, I did gymnastics and um, I, you know, I played whatever they threw at us. You know, you've got to do basketball and you've got to do this and do that. Um, I did all that. I, I swam. Um, I remember going through a phase where training for swimming wasn't much fun, mm -hmm. and I and I gave it up for a while. But then I heard about this thing called water polo, <laughs> and so and some of my friends were playing this thing called water polo, yeah. and I'm like, oh, well, that sounds fun. That's swimming on a team. And then I so I you know I rekindled my passion, you know, for for swimming via water polo. Wonderful. Um, and played that all through college. Um, and I always, I, you know, I skied. I think I started skiing when I was seven or something. So skiing was has always been part of my life. And skiing was pretty much always a fun thing to do. Um, and then somewhere in adulthood when my life was not going so well, mm -hmm. I would say nothing was fun. That's fair enough. And you it, know, like including movement, exercise, even things that I used to love. So I did. I wasn't enjoying skiing. I just, but that was that was me. You all know? the things that used to when, make you passionate were yeah, kind of when my world went gray. Mm -hmm. You know, exercise and uh, I mean, you know, and passion for movement that went along with it because well, everything went gray. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really fair point to make. Is that when things aren't going well in our life, 
everything feels like work. Mm -hmm. And so if movement has never been fun for you or there hasn't been something that you've been really passionate about, it feels like that much more daunting to get back into it. Because even if it's been, you know, part of your whole life story, mm-hmm. it can take a backseat for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I was aware of the absence of finding joy in it. Mm-hmm. But I was aware of the absence of joy in all sorts of things at that time. And um, yeah, but I would still force myself to do it, which in some ways actually made it worse. Why is that? Because I was forcing Because it. of the force. Because it yeah. wasn't, yeah, right? Yeah. So I was, I oh, I should be doing this. And, mm-hmm. you know, then I was sort of in all of those things of, oh, I really should do this. You were shooting all over yourself. I was shooting all over <laughs> myself. And yeah. And so there was, you know, there was a time there where it just wasn't as much fun. Mm-hmm. But I would even say, you know, once I got through that period of my life, and I'm happy to talk about that if you, you know, if you would like me to. But <laughs> once I got through that, I would say even... Um, even with injuries and surgeries mm-hmm. that I've had since, yeah. you know, sort of regaining my joy, um, I, even then I still found movement fun and and valuable. You know, even in even in in rehab. And could you? So I know, and you, you share pretty openly with your clients here. So I hope you don't mind talking about Mm-mm. some of the injuries and surgeries that you've had mm-hmm. that. Um, I like to think the way you talk about it is that you got to play with rehab mm-hmm. coming back from those. Yeah. So so two hip replacements. Two hip replacements, yeah. And is there something else that I don't know? Yeah, yeah. I did a um I tore my left ACL That's right. meniscus. I, I had, one. you yeah. know, if you if you read the imaging report, mm-hmm. um I read this funny thing today. It's <laughs> called imaging, not imagining. Oh, I like that. Which I thought was good. Um, <laughs> well, you can see anything in black and white. You can see all sorts of things. There's a smurf in your knee. You're going to make no. something up. Yeah. Um, well, we are the ones that imagine it in our heads yes. when we look at those reports it's or true. read about them. I think there were, I don't know, there was a there was a meniscus injury. Mm-hmm. There was a medial collateral ligament injury. There was damage to the cartilage. There was, oh, by the way, you've, had, you've, you've always had, you've got arthritis on the back of your patella <laughs> and you tore your ACL. So now all of these things coming together. So, yeah, Good so luck to all you. that. Yeah, and and what was interesting about that was I was already by then it was two thousand seven, I think. So I had sort of flipped my, mm-hmm. you know, my inner world around by then. And I remember when that happened. Um, yeah, I was in Steamboat where I used to work, um, and I I knew. I mean, I heard it. I felt it. I you know something thought, wasn't yeah, this right. Is not good. I yeah. kind of have an idea what just happened. And I was not going to call anybody to come get me in a sled. We were just talking yeah. about your ride in a sled as a kid. This um, down, downhill in a sled with skis. In a sled with skis, yeah. yeah. So I did it because I was in the trees. Mm-hmm. I knew it was a place having worked there where they may not find me, you know, and that's really a pain in the ass when you get sent on a, a, a 1050 on a wreck, right, yeah. and you can't find the person. So that I'm not going to do that to them. I'll never live it down. So I decided I was going to ski down. Okay. Um which I did, mm-hmm. and it was it was interesting because it's it's the t- it's the only time that I have ever really experienced that feeling that our patients and some of the people listening have would have experienced, where I was missing my lower leg, like my brain couldn't find my lower leg. No communication. I, no no communication. control. All I knew was I had to keep it somewhat on the ground mm-hmm. and let it just steer itself because I had, you know, I was more aware of that loss of connection to it. Mm-hmm. it. I mean, yes, it was uncomfortable, but it was more that that 
sticks with me. And well, so, you know. It speaks to that sort of disassociation that comes with our body that yes. it's, it's unnerving, even if it's familiar. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We need to know where we are in space. Our brain craves knowing our surroundings. It keeps us safe. It keeps us calm. Mm-hmm. And if just one part of you has gone missing. Yes. That's, that's more mindful than the pain. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. And that's what I was more aware of. So, you know, we had the MRI and the, what I chose to focus on when I got, in, got the MRI back was not all the things, not the seven things that they listed, but the fact that my ACL injury was incomplete. Okay. It was an incomplete tear, which in this case is, mm-hmm. is a good thing, yes. right? That yeah. it's an incomplete tear, not, you know, that I'm an incomplete person, but that I have an incomplete ACL tear. It's, it's better for recovery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. I chose to say, great, I didn't tear it all the way through. There's a chance that I can rehab this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I had my first exam with, with an orthopedic friend, he said, well, yeah, but, you know, it's functionally gone. Like your knee's there's not there's nothing there there's no structural integrity you know it was very those of you listening that have had acl injuries you know it was that it was you know the whole lower leg was moving more than it's supposed to and i said yeah but it's incomplete and he said yeah but you should still have the surgery and i said yeah but i'm not going to oh you had the audacity to think that you could put it back together i did so i chose not to have the surgery and i chose not to do any of the things that normally we would tell patients to do which Mm -hmm. is take anti-inflammatories. I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I took Advil the first day. Um, and then I decided, okay, well, what forms scar tissue? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, if I clot, I'm going to form scar tissue. Yeah. So why would I give myself something that's going to reduce my clotting factor? So I chose to let it bleed. I had to manage it. I mean, I didn't miss any work. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in here in a brace and crutches. Um, but I just reorganized my time so I would see a couple people and then I'd work on my leg. So I did some movement and I iced it and I elevated it and I did that. And um, you took the time to prioritize I took the time. And I said, you know what? I'm going to just, I'm going to grow enough scar tissue around the existing ACL. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to come back. And how did it do? It did great. That's wonderful. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't wear a brace now. I, th- I I got it. You know, they made me get a custom brace for the next season skiing. And I said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do that. And I have to say it was those first couple of times out skiing, mm-hmm. I had to overcome that story in the back of my head. You know, well, the, tissue, the last time. The tissue right? remembers. The, yes. the, knee, the knee and the fascia around it is going to remember. It's like, this didn't go so yeah. great. Last time Just this happened, which there. is part of what we now understand from the brain science mm-hmm. perspective is, yeah, you know, my brain was going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But don't you remember last time you were on these sticks on the snow? It wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> like things kind of went fact, sideways, we, including yeah. your knee. And we missed the whole rest of the <laughs> yeah. season, which is always a bummer. Um, at least for me, it's a bummer. Um, <laughs> for all my patients. But you know what? A funny thing happened. So and this also relates. It's a good pain science story, actually, is, you know, by the third time I skied, I thought, oh, yeah, I got this. I can, you know, I was becoming more confident. And it's something I've done my whole life. So I didn't feel, you know, I didn't have that piece of it of, oh, I'm not very good at this. I'm good. I'm a good skier. So you had the confidence. I had the confidence of that. Yeah. Um, But I still sort of had this dependence on the brace, even though we know it doesn't really, I mean, it's not going to stop the forces of nature, right? But it gives you a little bit of Gives your brain something. Gives your brain something to yeah, yeah. Gives you something to chew on. 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I about halfway through that season, I was I had arranged to go skiing with a friend of mine this one day, and it was a spectacular, unbelievably beautiful, you know, bluebird, just a gorgeous day. Mm-hmm. And I pulled into the parking lot to meet her, and I reached over the back seat to get my brace, and one of the screws had fallen out, and I couldn't find it. I'm looking in my little bag, and I couldn't find it. I thought, oh, screw it. I'll just go skiing anyway, right? And I did, and I was totally fine. And we skied, I think we skied bumps almost all day because it was sort of that soft, squishy fun. If you're a skier, you know what I'm talking about. Like I'm not a big, huge, I'm not a crazy bump skier, but I love kind of soft, fun play bumps. Cutting through it. And that's what we did all day. And and part of the point of that is I was going to go connect with a friend. Mm Mm-hmm. It was a beautiful day. I was really looking forward to it, and I had no fear. So those memories in my head were now overridden by this is safe, this is fun, you can do this, versus having those danger signals flashing in my nervous system of, yeah, 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 but don't you remember this is not, this is a bad thing to do. So, well, And it's true about pain sites that if you stay in that wallowing, can't, restriction, fear, and it is so, that fear portion is so controlling. That's why you, there's so much rhetoric that is trying to shift what we do and shift our opinion mm-hmm. based on fear. Mm-hmm. It's all mm-hmm. the emotional argument. Exactly. You really have to pit yourself with an emotional argument that's stronger, mm-hmm. and that is the joy and the enthusiasm mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. A, a little, I, I almost want to say reckless hopefulness, but because mm-hmm. in the face of fear, something like joy mm-hmm. does feel a little reckless. Yeah. Well, yeah. the way I think about it is, you know, whenever... Whenever we are in motion, mm-hmm. our emotion is actually driving the experience. True. Right. So you don't have you don't have an experience of motion mm-hmm. without some sort of underlying emotion because that's we are first and foremost emotional creatures. So so one way to think about it is emotion actually drives motion. So if we can identify what those underlying emotions are, we actually, even though you may be getting some, having some experience of discomfort mm-hmm. or pain, you could call it pain, um, it's going to be completely different than the experience that you have if the emotion is fear-based versus an emotion that's love-based. And I can tell you from my own experience of having brain injury and challenge, challenge with balance and something I've talked about mm-hmm. on the podcast and with other people before is that the biggest contributor as to whether or not I'm going to be able to balance and do the activity that I'm striving for that day is not how well rested I am, how stressed out I am, um, how much I've been doing my exercises and eating the food I'm supposed to eat. Mm-hmm. It's do I think I can do it? Mm-hmm. And if I am freaking out and I know that the only place I can put my yoga mat is in the middle of the room and everyone's going to watch me wobble and fall mm-hmm. trying to lift my foot mm-hmm. off the ground, then it is the worst. And it could be the same set of experience. And if I am hopeful and curious about what I can do that day, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what it looks like. I'm The experience is joyful and wonderful mm-hmm. and something to build on for that matter. Yeah. Well, and mm-hmm. the idea isn't perfection. Mm-hmm which is unachievable anyway. Right? Yeah. So that perfectionist in us that can, sometimes, can sometimes drive it also. Mm-hmm. If I'm going for something perfect, then I've lost the opportunity to actually practice what's going to get me better or what's going to improve it mm-hmm. because I'm going for perfect. Um, I don't know if you've heard there was, there's a, a good example. It was a study of um, people in a ceramics class. Okay. So the ceramics teacher came in at the beginning of the semester and said, okay, you know, A's and B's, half the group, right, were A group and half the group were B group. The B group were told you're going to be graded on making one perfect pot. 
by the end of the semester. And the other group was told, you have to turn in 50 pounds of pots mm -hmm. at the end of the semester. And that was all, and you'll be that graded. If you're 50 pounds, you get an A. If you're 45 pounds, you get a B. If you're 40 pounds, you get a C. And they actually weighed all these pots. And guess which group made the best pots? Oh, the 50 pounders. Exactly, was, because they just kept churning out pots and they were not afraid of failing and they weren't striving for perfection but they the fact that they were given permission to try it over and over and mm -hmm. over and over again that's what we knew and that's what we and they didn't need movement. to restrict themselves to not using resources being wasteful taking exactly. up too much time yep. i feel like the perfectionist pots that's just kind of mean mm -hmm. to put that pressure on someone for a whole semester exactly. but, but we do that yeah. with ourselves with movement and i would also say that a lot of practitioners do it mm -hmm. to their clients and patients around movement right one yeah. of the things that i say to my students you know our pilates students is please don't start correcting somebody before they've even made a mistake. Because what's happening a lot out there in the world of movement, in my opinion, having mm -hmm. seen it, is we're already putting so much pressure, pressure on people. Like you're supposed to produce a perfect pot in your body. You didn't even know what it's supposed to feel like to make not such a perfect pot. Mm -hmm. Right? And we start putting our hands on people and correcting them and 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 making them feel, I mean, it's shameful, actually, right? We f make them feel ashamed of their own body, and then they're ashamed to try something new. Well, they've failed us. They've come to us in vulnerability of pain or lack of function or a desire to do more or be more, which is audacious. Mm -hmm. And then we tell them, well, you're not doing it. Mm -hmm. Versus, you're not doing it right. And it's the saddest conversation that I have with my patients as they come in, and there's almost this, like, you know, child to mother experience of, I don't think I'm doing this exercise right. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just am not getting it. Mm -hmm. I like, well, did you do it? I tried. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Let's see what you're doing today. Mm -hmm. The most important part is playing with the clay. How mm -hmm. many pounds have you gotten through? Yeah. 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 And it's, you know, it's experimenting, it's exploring, it's not Does this work in your body? What's different? Yeah. And I would say, you know, there's, there are, there are ways that we can move that are more optimal. Mm -hmm. But I don't really know what that is in your body because you're in it and I'm not. And we all have our so, own story. So, yes, and we all have our own story. And I, 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 you know, and I know there are lots of disciplines. So mm -hmm. take, you know, for, for women, dance and gymnastics. And for men, it might be, you know, baseball or running or f football or whatever, you know. And, and I would say for younger kids now, this is changing a lot because they're exploring, they're experimenting, they're mm -hmm. finding sports where there are no rules about how it looks. This is true. Right? So it's kind of interesting how that's changed. But also what's changing is that kids are starting to specialize younger and younger. They are. So they're getting into the sports like soccer, baseball, volleyball, and that is now their sport, mm -hmm. and they're all of 10 years old. Yeah, well, and the problem with that is it's not play. Right. Right? And it's one motion repeated. It's, exactly. So they're not getting a chance. Yes, you're absolutely right. Because mm -hmm. it used to be, like when I was a kid, yeah. well, you play, we played a sport called netball, which is a version of basketball, but girls play it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it's only for the girls. It's only for the girls. <laughs> yes. Um, 
but we played netball one season and then we then we would play water polo and then you know whatever the heck else you wanted to do for another part of the season i mean we never did the same thing year round yeah ever and and nor should you because each one is going to challenge you to move a little bit differently mm-hmm. and you're going to get out of ruts and get stronger in different ways mm-hmm. what um another podcast that we talked about was um, gymnastics with kids and mm-hmm. we talked a lot about over specializing early on and there's mm-hmm. actually no correlation to success in your field no. if you start early and in fact you'll burn out and injure yourself faster exactly and it's just it's heartbreaking to watch I've, I've never seen so many middle schoolers coming in with shoulder pain and elbow mm-hmm. problems from mm-hmm. pitching well and it's that whole you know there's a lot of discussion from the psychological perspective mm-hmm. of when are you allowing your children playtime yeah Right. It's so structured. OK, well, you're going to go to the tutor for math that, over here and then you're going to go to your sport. And then, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you're going to go have your private for your sport. And then, you know, by the way, we've got this other thing over here. It's so stinking structured. And I remember, you know, I'm a lot older than you. Patty, so <laughs> um, but we would disappear mm-hmm. in the afternoon after school. And our parents had no stinking idea where we were. And we would just as long as we were home for dinner. All was well, you know, and I lived where I grew up in Sydney. We had bush behind us. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we would all be in the bush somewhere, you know. I mean, even if the parents tried to find us, they wouldn't have been able to find us because we had all sorts of hiding places and things. But we just went and played. And I remember with my cousins as as kids, we would play this game called the imaginary game because they had bush behind their house, too. Mm -hmm. So there were four of us. My aunt, my auntie Margaret, would send us off with food. And and one of us would would manage the imaginary game for the day. Okay. So we would tell the story and we all had to do whatever the leader was, whatever story it was, mm-hmm. whatever imaginary thing we were doing. And we were climbing rocks and we were climbing trees and then we'd have our picnic and, you know, there was, there was, they had this funny pool in their backyard and we'd pretend it was the ocean. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I look back on that now and think, how much value there is in mm-hmm. that kind of stuff because we were making stuff up we were telling stories we we're also allowing somebody to lead mm-hmm. even the youngest my cousin robin was the youngest right we, we you know and when it was her day to play the imaginary game it was her day and we had to follow her. Well, Plus, and I, she told great stories. Anyway, but. <laughs> well, and on top of that, you're challenging yourself and you're overcoming adversity. There's this brain plasticity mm-hmm, that comes mm-hmm. from it that now when you're coming up against something that challenges you, that's coming up against something that is contrary to what you expect, you've had an entire childhood mm-hmm. of making that a game. Exactly. It's not an affront to your senses. No. Yeah. So that's why, you know, when you say, well, when was I aware about, <laughs> you know, my relationship with movement? It was it was almost always a game, except for a few years of my life, I would say. That's wonderful. And it yeah. served you well. Hmm. Yeah. And what I love about your perspective with movement now, and one of the big messages that you teach, aside from the importance of chocolate, is <laughs> the awareness of when are we outsourcing our movement for convenience? Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. does the role, role of all these convenient um, tools, mm-hmm. even the the Alexas and the robots and the mm-hmm. push button um, coffee makers and, and pre-chopped vegetables. What does that do to our movement? Yeah. Yeah. What's I mean, we're paying a price for it. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're, pi- and we're paying a price in our movement. Just if you just take that as a standalone component. But we're also paying a price in our experience of ourselves and our experience of each other, mm-hmm. our community. It's it. I mean, it's a big topic, obviously. Yeah. Um, 
But I like to think about, it, you know, if you imagine this morning, you woke up mm-hmm. and you were in your hut. So you're probably in a hut with your whole family and you're probably on the ground, right? And yeah. now the sun just came up and it's time to start your day. What's the first thing that you're going to do? For me, it would be I'm going to go pee. Right? <laughs> yeah, anybody who's been camping, <laughs> yes, it's, it's right? go pee. <laughs> so I'm going to go do that. I'll take care of that first. So there are no, there's no toilet facilities. So mm-hmm. I'm going to have to get up off the floor, go out of my hut. I probably have to duck a bit because I bet you that it's not a not really a high, high door. door. Yeah. And then I'm going to have to go down to wherever the area is. And, you know, if we're nomads, probably doesn't matter too much where we pee. Yeah. But I'll, I'm going to go into what motion to pee? I'm going to go into a squat, right? Mm-hmm. So now that's taken care of. Now I'm going to get some water because i got to replace, you know, what I didn't drink overnight. So now I'm going to go to a lake or a stream or whatever we have, and I'm going to be squatting again. Mm-hmm. And I probably have some sort of a leather carry bag that t- holds water. Or right? a pot. Or, or a or pot something or something. And I'm going to either sling it over my shoulder or carry it in my arms or carry it on my head if I'm, you know, if I'm yeah. pretty good. Right? Already, by the time I get back to my hut, I've done more movement than most people in the Western world do in an entire week. It's true. I was thinking an entire day, but you're right. It is an entire week. An entire week. Because if you if you think about, you know, when was the last time, and I get this a lot, people coming in, and I, I remember this struck me a few years ago, a colleague, actually, who's mm-hmm. a, um, not a PT, but a colleague from um, a hospital where I used to work, and she came in, she was a maybe a couple years older than me, but at the time, probably in her 50s. And, you know, she was doing PT with me. And I said, okay, you know, I think, you know, you're ready to go into classes, into group classes. Um, and she looked at me just with abject terror in her eyes. And and we were in this room, actually. Mm-hmm. And she said, I, I don't think I can get down on the floor to do that mat work. And I definitely know I can't get up off the floor. Wow. So my mistake, I'd been treating her on a treatment table mm-hmm. and had not even had that conversation with her. Now I have that conversation with people a lot earlier in my interactions. <laughs> but <laughs> she had not been up and down from the floor in years. And, and so that was where time. we, that, I said, yeah. oh, okay, here's our work for the next few weeks. And that that then became a benchmark for her. Mm-hmm. And she figured out how to do it. And at first, you know, she would come in early She'd lay her mat down and she was actually using the Coraline ladders behind us to sort of help her get down and help her get back up. But eventually she was doing it on her own. Wonderful. But there's more of that, you know, in our culture than than we even realize. Well, and I think that that, that's an important thing to bring up because we use such an extreme measuring stick for what is health Mm -hmm. and and what is a movement goal. Mm -hmm. I, I too, have patients that can't get up and down off the floor, but they want to be able to do squats and they want to lift, they want to start lifting weights. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I need to lose some weight if I could just start lifting weights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if they dive into it right away, oftentimes that comes with injury Mm -hmm. because if you don't have that basic function of movement, squatting, mm-hmm. getting mm-hmm. down, up and down, off the floor, standing on one leg, mm-hmm. then you're jumping ahead to movement you're not ready for. Mm-hmm. And it's humbling but important to say that that functional movement should be everybody's first stop. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then the other piece of it is, okay, well, why do you why do you want to be lifting the weights in the mm-hmm. first place? Oh, I want to lift the weights because I want to lose some weight. Well, is there correlation 
Mm-hmm. Right? Between yeah. not necessarily. I yeah. don't know about you, but I've seen some pretty overweight people that still lift weights. Absolutely. Um, which isn't good or bad. It's just, you know, it doesn't guarantee it. So then, you know, it's also well, what's the underlying, what's under that? Mm-hmm. Why do you want to lose the weight? And how do you think you're going to feel mm-hmm. when you lose the weight? Tell me more about that. Right. Which is what I will now say to people because they'll come in and say, oh, I want to be strong. I want to be flexible. I want a strong core, which is a whole nother podcast because I don't use that that word too much. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <Fair>. um, <laughs> but, you know, because they don't you know, I mean, what does that even mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. But somebody's told them they need a strong core. So, OK, great. I, I hear that that's what you want. What what why do you want it? Mm-hmm. What's your motive? Why? Right. Like, I don't necessarily want to do squats. Yeah. Me personally. I mean, yes, I do them. But for me, being able to do a squat, like a functional squat, not a weightlifting squat. I don't do it with weights. (laughs) Um, That represented me being able to do something that for years I wasn't able to do because of my hips. Mm -hmm. So my my benchmark about being able to do a full squat had to do with how I was going to feel when I did that because it represented the dedication and the discipline that I had to keep working on my ankles and my hips and, mm-hmm. you know, my range of motion and, you know, do it over and over and over again enough times until I could do it. Yeah. And and it represented something that I thought had been lost forever. So when even when I talk about it, it chokes me up, right? <laughs> like I thought it was gone and I got it back. That's meaningful. Right. So we have to make movement meaningful for people. It's that diligent carrot that's going to make you return to it because, you know, it's something you'll carry with you for the rest of your life. life. And if you bring that to your movement practice, that's so much different than going to the gym. I don't go into gyms anymore because everybody looks fucking miserable. Excuse my French. That's See, right. I told you I might swear. We, we cleared it. It's all but good. The, <laughs> but when I go in there, people just look miserable. They There's do. no joyful movement. I mean, maybe for some people occasionally in some mm-hmm. gyms I'll see it. But most of the time they've either got their heads down and they're in their own world. Mm-hmm. Or they're distracting themselves with the TV or a magazine or they're listening to something. Whatever they can do to get through Whatever it. Whatever they can do to make themselves do it. Mm-hmm. But there's no joy in it, right? And yeah. then I'll look at the personal trainers and they're sitting there on their phones going, another 10, right? Like they're yeah. not real. There's not a lot of engagement. I just look at those places and I just think, wow, what a miserable place to hang out. Well, and then you look at why do people fall off the bandwagon? Why doesn't it stick? And when you start with, I'm setting my goal on something superficial and choosing to do something that truly makes me miserable and I'd rather not spend my mm-hmm, time doing mm-hmm. it. That's a real winning combination. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, where's the joy? Versus I want to do a functional squat because I want this part of my body back. And what movements do I know are getting me closer to mm-hmm, it? Mm-hmm. Well, there's motivation. Yeah. 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 And I think about it from that perspective of what did our ancestors do and how mm-hmm. did they move? And, and, and wow, I, I get to move. Yeah. It's freedom. I get to move. You know, I, I, I travel a bit and I went, I went through this stage of, oh, you know, I travel with a carry on bag cause I'd rather eat when I can, cause I'd rather not check it. Um, and I went through this stage of, oh, this damn bag, you know, and it's, it can be awkward because, you know, I always think, oh, there's a person's head like right there and I don't want to whack them in the head and, and there's somebody coming up behind you and, you know, so it can be awkward. 
And I had this aha one day when I was when I was, you know, lifting my bag up into the overhead and I thought, I have enough strength and function to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. I get to lift my bag up into the overhead every time I travel. How awesome is that? It's How really awesome cool. is that? I don't I don't need anybody else to do it for me. I'm capable of doing it. I'm able to do it. And guess what? I get to, you know, pull it down. And now when somebody says, can I help you? Because for a while I kind of went through this thing. Somebody needs to, you know, I was sort of a little victim-y about it. Yeah. Oh, somebody, some nice person needs to offer me to, you know, do that for me. And then I thought, I'm outsourcing my own movement, doy, right? I <laughs> yeah. sort of forgot. It's just another place oh, to give it to hello. somebody else. Now, whenever I travel, I'm like, I'm capable, I'm able to do it. And if some nice person actually kind of sees all the wrinkles and goes, oh, you know, can I help you? I'm like, no, you know, this is like, this is part of what I do. I'm so happy I get to do this for myself. Thank you, but no, thank you. And that's a wonderful example to set. And when I, and occasionally I've had people going, I never thought about it that way. So it's sort of, for me, it's a way, it's my community service to the people on the plane, um, you know, <laughs> if anybody yeah. asks. Because, um, yeah, I mean, think of all those things that we get to do. And and for our ancestors, that was survival. Mm -hmm. Nobody was going to do that for them. Nobody was going to pick the apples out of the trees for them. Nobody was going to carry their water for them. Nobody was going to build their huts for them. Nobody was going to, you know, go for the walk. You know, some days maybe we were walking 10 miles and we had all of our entire life on our back. And in the case of injury, we didn't have the luxury of just letting this be our new normal. Mm -hmm. And that that's a bothersome piece to me is you've hurt yourself and now this is as good as you'll ever get mm -hmm. again. Well, I think part we of the, the problem is that. you're not supposed to feel bad in our mm -hmm. culture. True. But we're actually all feeling worse because we're focusing on not feeling bad. And the yes. fact that we're not feeling bad actually makes us focus on feeling bad. And not going into the challenge and the grit mm -hmm. to have that sense of, look what I can do. I can lift my bag up yeah. and put it in this overhead. That's a gritty realization mm -hmm. that you would never get if you had always spared yourself the feeling of doing something heavy. Yeah. Well, and how, how do we respond? I mean, our... Our nervous system, our physicality, our fascial system, our joints, our tissues, our mental and mm -hmm. emotional health depends on on being loaded. Yeah. Right. So if we're not loading our tissues and if we're not loading ourselves in particular ways, and I'm not saying overload, but loading in a particular way, challenging our own capacity for mm -hmm. living, then we're actually shrinking. And, you know, I don't, I don't, you probably know this, but us, uh, in Australia, they banned um, ads for drug companies years ago. I'm so jealous. Um, <laughs> but New Zealand, I, I read not that long ago, they have not. And I think New Zealand and the U.S. are the only two countries left in the world. Really? That allow commercials for drugs on mm -hmm. television. And if you look at any of those ads, they're all about, you know, if, if you feel depressed, if you feel pain, if your tummy is a bit upset, whatever it is, that's bad. That's a bad thing. You should never feel bad. And here's a pill, right? And oh, by the way, the there's all these side effects, you know, which they rattle through really quickly. With happy bunnies on but the screen. Yeah. So it's always daffodils and mm -hmm. smiling faces and all that kind of stuff. They're selling emotion, mm -hmm. right? They're not selling the drug. They're selling emotion. But what they're telling us is it's not okay to feel bad. I, when I had my hip surgeries, right? Like, yeah, yeah there was some discomfort. Mm -hmm. I knew it was temporary. 
And I did it, by the way, I did no opioids post-op. I did it with, I did both surgeries with just a block, like a spinal block. Um, they did give me, they did give me a drug so that I wouldn't remember it. Cause I, I, I fought them on and I'm like, can I just be awake? Can you not give it? me the amnesia thing? <laughs> yeah. And they said, you know, it's kind of not always a good thing. You don't know how you're going to respond when you're sort of hearing your own, you know, hip being dislocated and all that. So I don't know. Anyway, and I don't know what I said because they won't tell me that either. But but I was awake for it. I just don't remember it. Okay. Um, but I made the decision that I was not going to do opioids, mm -hmm. partly because I don't react to them well anyway. My system doesn't like them. And partly because I have an addiction in my, my history. So I'm like, okay, I'm not going to. I'm just not even introducing it as a concept. So I did a lot of training ahead of time to make sure that I had myself messaged in a way, mm -hmm. right, that, it, it, yes, I knew I was going to experience some pain, but it was going to be temporary and it was totally worth it, right? And that yeah. was the story I had beforehand. It's the story I went in. So anytime that they came in to ask me what my pain level was, I had a gratitude chart that I made, which you've seen, and I, I stuck that. it on the wall. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, my gratitude right now for living in a country where I can have this done, I have health insurance that's going to pay for it. I'm not out of pocket for it. And I'm going to be skiing, you know, with, with you know, way more freedom. My gratitude's a seven. And mm -hmm. they'd be like, but what's your pain? And I said, I'm not, you know, like the if you want a number, matter. write yeah. down seven because you're not giving me anything for it anyway. Yeah. What what is this going to help with getting me out of the hospital if I'm telling you how capable I can I, feel? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I with both of them, it you know, the it it went the way you would sort of expect from a rehab perspective. You know, I did what I was supposed to do and um, you know, got back into function pretty quickly. I mean, and I still consider that I'm kind of working my way through all of that because mm -hmm. I'm still getting better. Um and we always are because one, there's no such thing as perfect. Exactly. Um <laughs> There's still lots to explore, Kelly. Exactly. <laughs> if you're not exploring, yeah. you're dead. Exactly. But, you know, that telling myself that story. So it's not to say, you know, pain isn't real. Mm -hmm. All pain is real. We experience it. Us, it's us that's ha it's happening to and Absolutely. in. Um, but it's all about what's that story around it. Well, right? pain, pain is first experienced in the brain. Yeah. Not in the tissue. Absolutely. Not in the cut. Not in the surgery. Nope. And by the, the way, it's a very, our personal experience of pain, which is very personal. Mm -hmm. Our personal experience of pain is a terrible indicator of damage. Oh, yeah. I, except for that initial, right, that initial injury. So you sprained your ankle or you cut yourself. You know, like I have a little cut right now on my finger that I did. Um, cutting my vegetables. <laughs> um, or like today when we, we went stand up paddle boarding right before I came here and I'm sitting kind of on the edge of the of the lake where we go and this little one of those little horsefly things bit my foot. Ow. Well, yeah, I felt that, but it was brief. Mm -hmm. Right. So pain is designed to get our attention to say, like, Maybe that thing was still there. It wasn't, obviously. Maybe but, you it know, was are you in a position where you need to remove yourself from the situation and mm -hmm. save the entire organism? Yeah. But yeah, it's produced. It's an it's an output. It's not an input. And yeah, that's what all the research is telling us is pain is a terrible indicator of damage. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's pretty unreliable. So mm -hmm. if even if I'd said to that person, "My pain's a 10, what are they going to do? Oh well, then here's some more morphine. Well, then mm -hmm. what's that going to do? 
Yeah. Right. And lots of studies now have uh, teaching us, and this is I think this is where, you know, what we know about the pain research is that there's a huge emotional, mental component and behavioral component and past history and belief systems and all of those other things all go into that soup that creates this output called pain, um, is that even things like Advil and Tylenol change our emotional experience. Absolutely. And the, the research is suggesting things like t having Advil or Tylenol um, depresses not just the pain, but your entire emotional awareness, mm -hmm. because that's the pathway they play on. Precisely. Pain is emotional, so yes. it gives you, now I can't remember if it's Tylenol or Advil, maybe you did, that reduces your empathy. Yes. And your awareness and ability to connect with others. Yes. And then there's a reduction in joy because connecting with others is joy. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It's it's, it's Tylenol, I believe. Tylenol. It, it, yeah. it steals from your experience. It does. And there was a, there's a woman um, in England who, um, there are people in the world who don't feel pain, mm -hmm. right? So they were studying this woman. She made it into her 70s, actually, which is rare because a lot of them die young, um, partly because they're, not, they're unaware of the injuries that they're causing themselves. And then you know, there was one guy in Australia, actually, he died jumping off a roof and he had internal injuries. And he used knew. to do it for a lot because it didn't hurt. Well, had internal injuries and didn't know it because he didn't have any pain. You know, He was not getting having the experience of pain. But this lady in England, they've been studying her, she does not get anxious, but she also does not feel joy. Oh. So she's an interesting one to study because, oh, wouldn't it be great if you never felt pain? Mm -hmm. And maybe if you're somebody who feels like they're in a lot of pain, you would say, yeah, I'll take that. Thank you very much. But you're never going to get to joy. You don't even have the possibility of ever getting well, to joy. And life is made of opposites. And how mm -hmm. can you appreciate what joy is without knowing the lack of it? Mm -hmm. And conversely, you wouldn't know what anxiety was if you weren't afraid or, or um, nervous of missing something that meant something to mm -hmm. you. They, mm -hmm. they are two sides of the same coin that can't be avoided. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Yeah. If you're really living. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, true. They can be. Sorry. They can be avoided. They can be avoided. But perhaps maybe they shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not to say, you know, you can't be living in joy all the time. I yeah. think anybody anybody who tells you that is lying to either well, you and, and or themselves. And that's, that's such a big shtick. I love seeing the conversation happening in the yoga community now because that's such a big shtick about yoga. Yes. I, I am zen. I am, yes. I am here. Yeah. My I'm blissed out. I am blissed out. <laughs> yeah. And that is not what yoga is meant to be. No. Yoga stems from meditation. It stems it from awareness and self-reflection. And that is gritty. Yes. That yes. is nasty and, stuff. And yoga as <laughs> we know it is about the same age as Pilates as we know it. It's about yeah. 100 years old. Prior to that, yoga, the poses in yoga were very similar to the poses in other disciplines. But the um, whole exercise Which is about how do you get to that inner part of your being, mm -hmm. right? But it wasn't about the physical piece of it necessarily. I mean, that was a component of it, but it was using the physical to get to more of the, that spiritual, emotional center. The, the, yeah. the, um, the physical exercise component didn't show up until the introduction of the Western world. Exactly. It was a way of, of exploring the gymnastics and the physical prowess mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that was rising in importance because the Industrial Revolution was upon us and we were losing all of that natural movement. Yeah. 
outsourcing was upon us. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and for decades and you know before all of that happened, most of the people on the planet were doing for themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, there were the elites. Yeah. Right. If you think about medieval times, you know the yeah. If you were kings the owner of the castle and... in feudal times, yeah. Okay, those people. Um, but even they they did physical activity. They mm-hmm. had to. They couldn't survive without it. Everyone had to squat to pee. Everybody <laughs> had to squat to pee. Everybody was taught something. They were mm-hmm. trained. I mean, you even think about, you know, Henry VIII, right? Mm-hmm. He was supposedly a really great swordsman and a horseback rider and a hunter. And, you know, I mean, he did it because he was th- he could. But, but he was physically trained, and a lot of them were physically mm-hmm. trained. And the women were taught to you know, to, to do things and create things and make things. And, you know, I, like the, imagine if the clothes that we wore, we had to make just that, just that one thing. And the time that it would spend to, to bend over, lean over mm-hmm. the small minor movements that you do yeah. with your hands, the, the furling out carrying of the yards of fabric. Yes. That are so well, heavy. how do you make the fabric in the first place? Oh, that's even a fair point. And yeah. where does the where does the yarn come from? And then tending to like, the sheep. You've got to go all the way <laughs> yeah. back. Yeah, we've got to t- tend the sheep and shear them, and then treat that. And or we've got to grow the cotton, or whatever the heck we have to do. And instead, we have a delivery box come to our front door. Yes. Yes. With the big smiley face on it. <laughs> <laughs> not that we're naming names. No, not that we're naming names. <laughs> well, I know we could keep talking, and we have for yes, hours and yes, hours, where only patient care and work has made us shut up but i to to round everything up if you could condense into to one thought how would you like to change the way people think about movement um one of the one of the things that i have in my head for you know why i'm here mm-hmm. is that you know i want to help transform movement health just globally yeah. just as a small you know, <laughs> a small vision in life. No um, I, because I'm, you know, in my 60s now, and I hear this story all the time, I'm too old, dot, dot, dot. Um, I, I think, you know, what, what I would like people to think about is whatever you're doing today is an investment for tomorrow. Whether your investment is your 30 and you can only think to 40 or an investment mm-hmm. is you're 45 and maybe you can now start thinking into your 60s. You know, I think as we get older, we can think a little, a little bit, bit older. further. Um, so as far as movement health goes, it's it's whatever you choose to do in this moment with your movement is an investment in tomorrow and an investment five years from now and 10 years from now and 20 years from now. So if you see the the joy and the pleasure in squatting to pee right like if you get to go camping if you live in colorado and you get to go camping squat yeah don't go use the thing right i mean well it sort of depends on where you are yeah you know what i mean some of the Um, (laughs) sometimes you have to near potable water yeah yeah, exactly there's all that and don't don't do it right next to the river and all that or next to your neighbor Um, but you know or even just try it on don't actually pee and just see what it feels like But, but what, what things can you create in your day-to-day life that require you to move more and consider that you can gain pleasure from it now and even more pleasure of it from it 10 years from now when your investment is paying off? So an example of that is, you know, if you work on a laptop, sit on the floor and put it on your lap instead of using your desk. 
Mm-hmm. If you if you brush your teeth, which we all should be doing, stand on one leg to brush your teeth. Two minutes, right? You should be doing it for two minutes. So one minute, stand on one leg. The mm-hmm. other minute, stand on the other leg. Play with movement. Movement should be playful. It's an exploration. It's never perfect, but it's always available. It's wonderful. So in all of those little moments, we'll look to find ways to increase movement and see what's a little bit better tomorrow, but never perfect. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lindy. I'm so excited. Um, Lindy's going to do a little guest tutorial for us, and everyone should get the experience of how Lindy describes and encourages movement. So look out for that next. Thanks. Thank you.